This week on Myths and Legends, we're starting the Odyssey, the story of Odysseus's journey home from the Trojan War, where we'll learn how to make a week-long road trip last several years, and how that all-you-can-eat goat cheese buffet might not be all it's cracked up to be. The creature this week is the personification of ignorance and chaos, who eats clouds. This is Myths and Legends, episode 205A, Man of Constant Sorrow. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins, and others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. You don't need to have heard the previous episodes on the Trojan War to listen today. You can just jump right in. As a refresher and a bit of a backstory, Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, was one of the Greek kings who fought in the Trojan War. And, very long story short, they won. They burned and sacked Troy, made all their sacrifices, and set off toward home. And immediately got separated. We're going to jump right into a situation that might just be Odysseus's absolute worst day on his trip home. Though, there's fierce competition for that. And then we'll backtrack a bit and see how he got there. Odysseus heard the stone strike the flint, saw the first light since the door choked out the last of it the previous night. There was an eye, an eye seeking in the diminishing darkness. Some hid, some prayed, more than a few of his bravest, men who had survived the horrors of Troy, wept all through the night. Odysseus didn't. He sat up, doing what he did best, thinking. The hands found them before the eye did. There was a scuffling. They tried to run. Odysseus just sat there and accepted his fate. But as he heard the screaming scuffling and slamming of two of his men being turned into ragdolls, he allowed himself a sigh of relief. As the light from the fire grew, the mangled, grotesque edges of his men took form. Then, the one-eyed giant tore off a limb from each and ate them raw. As through the night, some prayed, some wept, but Odysseus just sat there, jaw clenched. When the the thing was finished. He rose. His fingers found grips that were up twice Odysseus's height on the stone wall. The sinews in the creature's back rippled as he used all of his strength, and soon the stone started to move. Soon daylight blinded everyone inside, illuminating the blood specks they had all felt. Odysseus didn't look back to see his men huddled in the recesses of the cave, wondering who would be next. He simply met the eye of the monster as the creature grinned, drove his rams from the cave, and snuffed out the light behind him. As they sat there in the dark, Odysseus rose. Now wasn't the time for fear. Now was the time to get to work. He didn't survive Troy to die in a cave. Odysseus was going to get home. A few weeks earlier, Odysseus wrapped his cloak tighter, a bulwark against the chill in the air. It was dusk. 
they had traveled too far already. They needed to stop for the night. It had been days since they left Troy, a smoking shell of its former glory, and the ships were overladen with Priam's gold. It was almost done. Almost. Ten long years Odysseus had been gone. His boy, the baby he left, Telemachus, would be nearly a teenager by now. He had missed so much. And Penelope, she had stayed true. He knew she did. He didn't deserve Penelope. He had tried harder than most to stay out of the war, even feigning madness. He tried and failed, and he had been sucked into the chaos that had consumed their entire world. But it was over now. Odysseus had ended it. His mind had led to the deaths of thousands, but he could go home. It was worth it in the end. It had to be worth it. Not here, Odysseus shook his head as he felt the cool heralds of an oncoming rain sprinkle his arm. He pointed to the shore, with its sheep and storehouses laden with wine barrels. There was a kingdom there. The last thing they needed was more bloodshed. They would keep looking. This was the Aegean Sea. There were islands all over the place. There would be something. Here, his first mate said, not breaking eye contact. Soon, the rain would be so thick that they wouldn't be able to see those islands and the men weren't sailing in the darkness, in a storm, on empty stomachs. Odysseus was smart enough to know that while he was the king, he was alone out here on the sea. The men wanted to stop and take the wine and sheep, and he really didn't have a good reason for them to press on in the rain and darkness after having endured ten years of war. <sighs> sure, they were stopping. As the men broke open the wine barrels and slaughtered the sheep, Odysseus readied his sword, spear, and shield. When the warriors thundered over the hill on their horses, the people who owned the sheep and the wine his men were using to throw an impromptu beach party, Odysseus was ready, ready for more bloodshed. We shouldn't have stopped here, Odysseus said, wiping the blood from his blade. It was morning before the men retreated. Their sheep had been slaughtered and wine destroyed in a battle that lasted hours, but the men fought on. Odysseus had 12 ships, so 600 men in all. They lost 72 that night, but it was 72 that didn't need to die. 72 who had survived Troy to die in a pointless raid. Pointless raid. 72 more families that would be forever incomplete. No, he was king here. He would decide when they stopped again. Of course, he wouldn't. A storm would. As they saw the darkened clouds roaring with the rage of Zeus, he ordered the boats to find land as quickly as possible. And they did. It was two days before they left the deserted island to which they had clung. After that, they sailed on for nine more days. Odysseus wanted to press onward, making up for lost time. Ithaca was so close. But even though he might have wanted to press on, there were needs that superseded his desire for speed, like his men not dying from thirst, whiners. He spotted an island up ahead. There. But they were going to do it his way. No raiding. As the men rushed off the boat for water, Odysseus turned to his three fastest. Go inland, quickly, 
he pressed some golden Trojan trinkets into their hands. Show them that we come in peace and tell them that we're just passing through. We don't want any trouble and we won't bring any of our own. The men nodded. They would be right back. Odysseus slapped the hand of the soldier reaching for the lotus. What are you doing? The sailor pointed to the three scouts. What? They looked like they were loving this stuff. He wanted to try it. Odysseus groaned. Put them down. So earlier that day, when the men hadn't returned by mid-afternoon, Odysseus took a contingent of warriors and went inland. The city wasn't far, though there wasn't anyone at the gates. He entered and recoiled. The stench wasn't just death. It was so much more. Odysseus looked down the city streets. There were people, and there were corpses. The dead were lying in the street, or propped up against a building, desiccated and decaying, in piles and puddles of their own filth. The living were very nearly like the dead, but they either stared off into nothing, or ate occasionally, nothing else. Odysseus approached someone eating a flower, and said he came to their land in peace and wanted to see their king, but the person just kept eating, as if the king of Ithaca wasn't even there. Odysseus studied him and continued on. It wasn't long before he found his scouts. They were sitting down next to a corpse, devouring the flowers. Odysseus asked them what was going on, but they, too, didn't respond. This is when he slapped one of his warrior's hands. The man glared at his king. The man who had come with Odysseus, who hadn't yet tried the flowers, said, what was that all about? Those things look awesome. Yeah, they look awesome, Odysseus said. Too awesome. It's obviously destroyed the city, and these guys don't want to do anything other than sit here eating them until they die. You're not eating those, Odysseus said, and then looked directly to the camera. Lotus flowers. Not even once. It was easy to get the scouts. They were lying there, relaxing, belly full of lotus flowers. They didn't even resist when Odysseus ordered his men to grab and hogtie them. Getting them back to the boats was a bit more difficult, and the surprisingly quick onset of withdrawal meant that Odysseus and co. had to just drag them back to the boats, literally kicking and screaming. Bound and gagged, he let the men detox for several days underneath a bench, while they got as far away from the land of the lotus eaters as possible. It wasn't a week before they had to stop again, though. The fog at night had led them to an island they didn't know, and they had no choice but to dock. They all listened to Odysseus this time, drinking their own wine and eating their own food, and not venturing inland to spark a battle that will leave 70 dead. Ugh, could Odysseus be more overbearing? In the morning, the men ventured out, and for as far as they could travel, they not only didn't see a kingdom, but they saw no signs of cultivation whatsoever. Odysseus shrugged. But nice! grab some goats, grapes, go nuts. And so they did. As a welcome respite from the sea, Odysseus's men found plenty on the island, and they stayed another night. The three in recovery had their bonds loosened, and they immediately went and started eating wildflowers, looking for that sweet, sweet rush. But eventually, even they settled down. Odysseus looked across the bay and gathered those closest to him. The last thing they wanted to do was offend a local king. He would take one ship, himself and his 12 best fighters, a big enough force to keep themselves safe, but not so big that it would be seen as an invasion. 
He was going to go check out the other island. He'd be right back. Nice goat cheese, the men said, looking at the earthenware vessels. This is a good day. The warrior shoved down a second fistful. The others were digging into the way, while still more were figuring out how to work the gate for the goats. On the other island, they found more of the same. Nothing. Well, that is, until they came to a cave. It was massive, and it held not just a bed that was three or four times the size of one Odysseus would sleep in, but goats, four times the size of normal goats, and enough cheese and milk to keep his men satisfied for days. So I know this is a diplomatic thing, but we're going to rob this guy blind, right? One of Odysseus's warriors spoke up. He pointed to the sheep. You know, we could probably drive them down the rocks and fit half a dozen in our boat, along with the cheese and milk. And look at the way, already packaged in those helpful oversized cylinders. I can get back in the gym finally. It's been 10 years. Odysseus took a deep breath. Guys, what if, I don't know, the resident of this cave and whoever else was with him chanced upon them stealing his goats and food? We'll stay. Introduce ourselves. It'll be fine. Sometime around dusk, when they had their fill of the goat cheese dinner, they heard a rumble. Odysseus looked at his men and motioned them to the back of the cave. Just in time, too, because two dozen giant rams thundered in, finding their pens. Then, the Ithacan saw what had been hurting the animals. Behind the animals, a giant swung his club, urging the last of the rams into the cave. Odysseus's stomach dropped, when the very next thing the giant did was grip the rock that sat outside the cave and roll it across the opening, sealing them all in. It'll be fine. Don't worry, we're now guests in his home. Zeus avenges the unoffending guests. Zeus is nothing if not principled and consistent. We'll be okay, Odysseus reassured his men, who, despite having shared in the combat of Troy, were uneasy. They watched the giant get to work by torchlight, milking his goats, working some of the milk into cheese. Finally, when it was time for dinner, he built up the fire. That's when he saw his guests, and they saw him. It wasn't just a giant, but a giant with one eye a cyclops. He looked to the back of the cave and saw 12 men huddled there. He went back to poking his fire. Eventually, Odysseus rose, walked to the front of the cave, and greeted the monster. You pirates? The cyclops grumbled. Odysseus shook his head. No, they were honest men who just got done sacking a city and killing a ton of people because a guy's wife wasn't that into him anymore. It was called Troy. Maybe you've heard of it. Now they were here. And it was a custom of Zeus for places to treat strangers with honor, helping them on their travels. Also, uh, shouldn't he be venting that fire somehow? They're, they're closed in a cave. With that, the Cyclops' low, rumbling laugh filled the cave. Zeus. The Cyclopes, which is the actual plural of Cyclops, didn't care about the gods. Had Odysseus ever heard of the Gigantonomachy? Odysseus nodded, yeah. Episode 92. More of his men, inspired by their leader's bravery and talking to the monster, rose and approached to stand alongside their king. 
The Cyclops grinned a rotten smile. Well, the gods better hope there was never a Cycloponomachy. Cycloponomachy? Whatever it will be called, it will be bad. For them. The fire roared, and the Cyclops' eyes studied Odysseus and his men. The ship. Where was it? One of the men started to point in the direction across the bay, but Odysseus spoke up. Nowhere. The Lord Poseidon dashed it against the rocks the day before last. They clung to the debris until they made it to shore. These thirteen men were all that remained. The men, who had been used to following Odysseus's lead at this point, nodded. Yep, that's, that's exactly what happened. Thirteen, the Cyclops said. Weird. I count eleven. The Cyclops reached out with both hands on either side of Odysseus and palmed the faces of two of his men. Showing no emotion whatsoever, he tossed both up in the air and caught them by their feet. The others cried out as the giant took both men and whipped their heads against the rocks until they were ragdolls. All cried out. All, that is. Except for Odysseus, who wiped his comrade's blood from his face and went to go take a seat at the back of the cave. Some among the Ithacans held their ears so they didn't hear the Cyclops crunching on their comrades. Bones, entrails, and all. Odysseus heard it. He made himself listen to every bite. Every gulp of blood chased with whey. Those men were dead because of him. And if he didn't think of something, they would all follow. We'll see Odysseus's plan to escape from the Cyclops, because Odysseus always has a plan, but that will be right after this. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. That's where we open the episode when, the next morning, the giant, who's on kind of a Mediterranean diet, dashed two more Ithacans against the rocks and ate them raw before taking his sheep out. 
and rolling the stone back over the opening. When it was still, when he was sure the monster wasn't coming back, Odysseus rose and fed the fire. He turned to his men. Well, were they going to get to work, or were they going to die? Him? He was going to get to work. That night, the men sat, an octagon surrounding Odysseus. Odysseus prayed to Athena that the monster would wait until after he heard Odysseus' offer to prepare dinner. But as soon as the stone was rolled into place, he plucked two men from the ground, two good men, who Odysseus had known for most of their lives. He would pay for this. I know goat milk is nice and all, but want to try something a little bit more fun? Odysseus asked his host. The Cyclops looked at the little king, finishing off the leg he was working on, and found Odysseus emptying a wineskin into a carved bowl. For all the giant grapes on the island, Odysseus hadn't seen any wine. This was a gift from a king at one point in his life, and it was less wine and more so liquor. Odysseus said that he meant this as an offering to whoever would help them on their way, but things went a little sideways here. He still wanted to give a good gift, as was the responsibility of the guest, and the monster cut him off, pushed him aside, and drained the bowl. The monster sat back in shock. Whoa. His eyebrow was halfway up his forehead. Wow. He turned to Odysseus. Another. Odysseus was already filling the bowl. Hey, this, this drink is amazing. You, you food are all right. What's your names, guys? The Cyclops asked, and then threw back another bowl of liquor. Odysseus was filling up a third. As the Cyclops drained that, Odysseus said that his name was Nobody. His mother, father, friends, everyone called him Nobody. I like you, Nobody. You're a good guy. I like you so much that I'm going to eat you last, the Cyclops said, before swallowing his own burp. There's a noble gift for a good guy, and you are a good... The men paused and, and waited. Oh, oh, sorry, fell asleep there for a minute. Guy, the Cyclops mumbled. Now, if you'll excuse me, food, I need to fall asleep. And the Cyclops immediately landed hard on the skins right next to the fire. The Ithacans did excuse him, because as soon as he was out, Odysseus nodded to his men. They rushed to the pens, to the dung piles, and dug in deep, down to their elbows. They looked at Odysseus and nodded. They got it. It was as long as the mast of a ship, and as sharp as a spear. They had spent most of the day working on it, crafting it from the waste wood in the cave, sharpening it, hardening it. Not wanting to cut things too close, Odysseus finished a little early, but it would be good enough. Odysseus motioned to the men, who would join him to pick it up. They moved quickly to get the point over fire, and were surprised. Turned out smoking, fiery dung was worse than regular dung. Odysseus glanced to the tip over the fire, and then to the cyclops and back again a few dozen times, until the tip began to glow orange. His heart, he heard one of the men whisper. Odysseus looked at the cyclops' sleeping face. No. 
These men had heard the weeping of Achilles over Patroclus. They heard the mothers and fathers crying out for their children at Troy. They had heard the dying wail of a burning city. But when they plunged that red-hot spear into the Cyclops' eye, that was the worst sound they ever heard. The Cyclops' inebriation burned away quicker than the dung had, and he screamed. The sounds of his shrieks, accompanied by the hissing and popping, for the point puncturing and searing his eye, rendering him instantly and permanently blind. Almost as quickly as the spear sliced its way through the eyelid, the Cyclops was awake, reaching to cover his one and only eye. He felt the spear and wrenched it out, flinging Odysseus and his men across the cave. Blood streamed from his face, and he screamed with such force that it shook the pebbles from the alcoves high in the cave. The Cyclops groped in the cave, but he was easy to avoid. He wasn't what Odysseus had been worried about. Soon, there was a pounding on the rock outside. The Cyclops had neighbors, and they had heard the scream, and they wanted to know if everything was all right. Had someone stolen his flocks? Tricked him? Hurt him? Nobody! Nobody has tricked me! Nobody has ruined me! He screamed out. His neighbors were quiet for a moment. Okay unexpected way to emphasize those words, but whatever. If he needed, he could always pray to their father, Poseidon. Also, if he was okay, shut up, they were trying to sleep. If he kept this up, they were taking it up with the HOA. The Cyclops wept. No! Nobody did this to him. Nobody blinded him. The Cyclopes outside said, once again, weird way to phrase it and oddly specific, but they were glad he was doing fine. Good night. Back in the cave, all the Ithacans had to do was stay one step ahead of the Cyclops, which was not particularly difficult. He was mad, but he was also blinded, in enormous pain, and still quite drunk. It wasn't long until he cried himself to sleep. He couldn't find his bed in the end, which made Odysseus's next task pretty easy. He grabbed the rope from the Cyclops' bed, looked at the massive, shaggy rams, and for the second time that day, got to work. I'm going to kill you, nobody. I'm going to put a new coat of paint on my rocks. They'll be red, red rocks. Because it'll be your blood. Oh, what's that? Not so talkative now, are you? The Cyclops said. To an empty cave. He was letting his massive rams out to graze. And he wasn't completely oblivious to the possibility of escape. He blocked the mouth of the cave for all but the rams. And felt each of their backs for a rider. And it's true. None of the rams had a rider on their backs. In the night, Odysseus had rebuilt the fire and lashed each of his men to the belly of a ram. Since they didn't know when morning would come, they spent most of the night dangling there, but it was worth it when they emerged into the crisp morning air, clinging to the pectoral fleece. The Cyclops closed off the cave and drove the rams up the hill, overlooking the bay. And for the first time since the Cyclops set foot in the cave, Odysseus was relieved. His ship was still there, hidden. He nodded to the others, and together they untied the ropes and dropped silently from the rams. Adding insult to literal injury, they drove the Cyclops' rams aboard the ship, while he sadly sat there talking to them. The men didn't stop trembling, 
until the boat shoved away from land. Then, Odysseus had to open his mouth. Hey! Hey, stupid cannibal Cyclops, we're getting away. Sorry I'm not sorry about the eye. Maybe don't eat your guests, and Zeus won't give you what's coming to you, Odysseus said with a smirk. His men were livid. What was he doing? He was putting them all in mortal danger, and he, that wasn't even particularly clever. Odysseus gritted his teeth. He was fine with them questioning his leadership, but he drew the line at them calling him not particularly clever. He had some good lines ready for the Cyclops. Like how the only person to leave a Cyclops faster than us was Jean Grey. Oh, or how about the new Watchmen, the one on HBO? Anybody see that? That was good. There was a Cyclops in that, but it was like an evil organization. His men looked at each other. Nah, they, they didn't get HBO. This was, this was 13th century BC, and they've been at war for a decade. Don't spoil it, though. As Odysseus and his men were arguing about the merits of various comic book franchises, the Cyclops wasn't wasting this opportunity. He might have been blind, but he still had two ears, and sound localization was a thing. So he tore up a boulder from the ground and tossed it toward the bay. Odysseus and his men braced themselves as the boulder hit the water in front of them, nearly sinking the ship. Odysseus, adrenaline pumping from the near miss, turned back to the Cyclops. He should really know who did this to him. Hey, hey Cyclops. His men all but tackled him, whispering as angrily as they could, demanding to know what he was doing. That boulder almost sank them. Odysseus scoffed. Yeah, almost. He turned back to the Cyclops, the monster groping around the hillside for another boulder. An image flashed in Odysseus's mind of his friends, the best of his men being whipped against the stones like dolls until they were unrecognizable. These were men who had survived the madness of Troy. They were supposed to go home as heroes, not to be a dinner for a monster. So Odysseus yelled once again to the Cyclops. If ever a mortal man asks how you were put to shame, how you were blinded, tell him Odysseus, raider of cities, took your eye, the son of Laertes, whose home is on Ithaca. Really? One of Odysseus's men said. Just gonna like give him our home address then. But Odysseus ignored the man, readying himself for the Cyclops' rage. But he wasn't ready for his tears. Well, uh, not really his tears, technically. Odysseus had annihilated his tear duct, so there will be no more of those. But a deep, rumbling sob emanated from the beach. For a mournful wail, it contained a lot of exposition. In between sobs, the Cyclops explained that there was once a wizard who lived among them, a Cyclops known for his prophecy. Telemos had said that one would come for him and that he would lose his eyes at Odysseus's hands. He had always thought that the warrior who came to eternally shame him would be big and scary, a giant bigger than himself, but not this, that little twiggy short nothing. He would show tiny Odysseus. He would pray, pray to his dad, Poseidon. He would have his revenge. Odysseus, feeling pretty good at blinding a Cyclops and living to tell the tale, just laughed. He told the Cyclops to bring it on. Oh, and fun idea, if someone has prophesied to blind you in a battle, maybe don't immediately jump to eating your guests. Odysseus said he wasn't an expert, but he thought he saw things a little more clearly. He turned to his men. Get it? His men were already bracing themselves, because while Odysseus was taunting, 
he didn't notice the Cyclops had stopped wailing and picked up another rock. Odysseus watched it as it approached the ship and sailed right over the sails, hitting the water in front of them. But they rode it out. Odysseus sneered, looking back on the beach, at the Cyclops who was truly defeated. He had collapsed, weeping. Odysseus nodded. It would be mean. It would be just salt in the wound to tell him that he missed and failed completely. So Odysseus did so with no small amount of taunting before piloting the ship back to the rest of his men. When they arrived back at camp, the men were dismayed that they had lost so many captains. And truly, Odysseus was as well. He tried to console them, saying that they got the guy who did it. But it was small comfort. They unloaded the Cyclops' rams, and Odysseus took the old, fat one, the one he had been riding, and took it down to the beach as a sacrifice to Zeus. As the fat burned, Odysseus was filled with a feeling. He was unsettled. He prayed to Zeus, the focus of the sacrifice, and he never really got a response, but now, now he felt strangely cut off. He turned on the beach and called out to Athena, but as he looked out on the ocean, he was only met with the setting sun. He gathered up the meat to take it back to camp. It, it was nothing. It was just a feeling. He had done nothing wrong. It was all going to be okay. For all of Odysseus' unnamed, avoided dread, they had a pretty uneventful few days. After the island of the Cyclopes, when his men were fortified with stolen mutton, they set out again, and soon another island rose on the horizon. They docked peacefully and found the local king as soon as they could. As it turned out, his name was Aeolus, and thankfully, for the first time on Odysseus's long journey home, if only there was some more succinct name for that, they found a local king that was friendly to the Greeks. He was very nice, uh, kind of too nice, in fact, because he wanted to hear the full story of the Trojan War, one that took a whole month to tell. If you think that the fastest way home probably doesn't include a month off for royal story time, you'd be right. And even Aeolus realized that it was a big ask. He offered to help Odysseus on his journey. Because not only was he a Mediterranean king, but oh yeah, he ruled the winds. The winds, Odysseus said. The king nodded. Mm-hmm, here you go. He whistled, and his men arrived with a bull's hide bag, and they did not skimp on the bull hide. It was a full bull, head to tail, that had been made into a bag. Odysseus started to open it, but Aeolus snatched it from his hands. That was not a good idea, one at a time. When Odysseus was back on the open sea, he needed only to call the western wind from the bag. Aeolus was piling enough provisions aboard to last them the rest of their journey. Don't stop for anything, and you'll be home soon. Odysseus could hardly believe it. He tried to keep himself from getting his hopes up, even when he snuck off to loosen the bag and summon the wind. Even when his men could relax at the oars for nine days while their sails were swollen, even when, off on the horizon, he saw the familiar shape of Ithaca, his home, 
He hadn't seen it since the day he tried to feign madness. His boy was a baby then. Telemachus had to be pushing 12 now. His son had grown up without a father. His wife had been without a husband. All that changed. Today, his heart was full to the point of bursting. Then, dark clouds began to form above them. The sail began to whip in the other direction, then in every direction. Odysseus's eyes flew to the bag and saw a half a dozen men trying to pin down the opening. They thought, of course, when someone gives your boss an ox-sized bag, it must be full of treasure. And since Odysseus was usually so generous with his spoils, it must be something really good. They only wanted a peek. But as soon as they loosened the mouth of the bag, they realized the enormity of their error. The winds whipped up all around them, and Odysseus's sails were shredded before he could order them furled. The winds churned the sea, and Odysseus flew to the front of the boat, watching as his home, his Ithaca, disappeared in a haze of wind and rain. They battled for days, at first trying to keep the winds in the bag, but then they realized that that drip, drip, drip of constant, conflicting winds only prolonged their rain-battered agony. So they decided to just let all the winds out of the bag at once. They all nearly drowned, but soon the bag was flat, and the skies were clear. They were alive, but where were they? Odysseus looked out on the horizon, and once again, he saw the island. He ordered his men to their oars. Go! They were so close now. The winds, it seemed, had thrashed them, but with their sails shredded, they stayed in the same spot. They were still almost home. The ship careened toward the island, but Odysseus could hardly wait. When they were close enough, he jumped off and onto the dock to meet the waiting gaze of King Aeolus, the place they had come from. Almost two weeks ago now, Odysseus was right back where he started. Next week, we'll continue and conclude this leg of our journey. And if you think one month off for story time is irresponsible when Odysseus has a family and a whole kingdom waiting for his return, well, you haven't seen anything yet. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of chip fingers, tiny silicone dishwasher safe finger guards for eating Cheetos, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of this show that also won't leave your fingers coated with processed cheese dust. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Fritra, from the Vedic Sanskrit hymns. Fritra, alternatively called the Archfiend Fritra and the Shoulderless, is a serpentine dragon, so it kind of earns both of those names. Dragons are evil, and also snake ones might not have shoulders. It's the personification of chaos, darkness, fanaticism, ignorance, and intolerance. So, you know, just ancient world stuff that we never deal with today. It should come as no surprise, then, that Avritra was a bad guy. It was created by a god as a means of vengeance against the hero god Indra. 
when you create a monster, you really want to have a handle on it. Better yet, don't create monsters to try to get your way. The artisan god, Tvashta, though, couldn't be convinced. He created the Vritra and immediately recognized his mistake because the Vritra wouldn't stop growing. It's said, like arrows released in four directions, the body of the monster grew quickly. The hair on it was like melted copper and the eyes were as piercing as the midday sun. He laughed and danced, causing earthquakes. He filled the sky with darkness, covering all of it with shadow and blotting out the stars as he drank. He drank all the water from the sky and held it in his body, refusing to release any of it for the humans on earth. Laughing as people died, the hero it was meant for, Indra, a guardian deity and the king of heaven, approached. He tried to appeal to the monster's better nature, as you can probably guess, chaos, darkness, fanaticism, ignorance, and intolerance doesn't really have a better nature. It only laughed in Indra's face. So the battle began. It's said that the battle lasted 360 days, all while the rest of the gods were scrambling in the background. Finally, in a brief respite, when it looked like all hope was lost, the devas approached Indra with a weapon, the only thing that could banish darkness and ignorance. And no, it wasn't like poetic, like a book or something. It was a thunderbolt arrow crafted from the bones of a sage. In almost a year, Indra had exactly one opening that one time when the Vitra blinked and he took his shot. The Vitra plummeted toward the earth and for the first time in a year, the rains began to fall. Of course, they were rains that had been hanging out in a giant dragon for a year or so probably didn't taste too good. As we've talked about, parenting is an important job. And if your child turns out to be an ignorance monster who brings nothing but drought and chaos to the world, either you've made some serious missteps in your parenting and completely lost control of the situation, or you've accomplished your goal. Or, in the case of the Vertra, both. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? You should really check out BetterHelp. They assess your needs to match you with your own professional, licensed therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. Visit betterhelp.com myths. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Myths and Legends listeners get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com myths. All right, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.